Well, good morning, everybody. Beautiful morning. Start of the holiday season. We have Thanksgiving coming up next week. One of my favorite seasons. And tonight, soup and pie. It's going to, you know, it's all about eating this time of the year, you know. <laughs> Which, regrettably, is one of my besetting sins that I'm never really able to get a handle on. So uh, it kind of feeds into that. But that's all right. I'm eating pie tonight. That's all I got to say. Last week we um, finished discussing the introduction to the letter, looked at verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul talks about centering our identity on Christ and the remarkable story that Jesus Christ is Lord and to abound in thanksgiving, not just this week coming up, but throughout the year. Paul has been encouraging the Colossians to stand strong in their faith in the light of the heresies or false teachings occurring around them. We discussed that they had received some sort of a new believers class, uh, informed them of the basics of the faith. Paul encouraged the Colossians to walk in Christ, to be rooted in Christ Jesus, to be built up in him, and to abound in thanksgiving. Because for Paul, all of his letters are about gratitude and thanksgiving. And for us, everything also should be about thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Today we're going to talk about the reason that Paul wants them to be strong in their faith, which is the false teachings and heresies which were threatening to infiltrate that church and to drag the Colossians away from their faith. And in this section, we're going to see today Paul issues a warning. He reviews the Colossians' fullness in Christ. He talks about circumcision and baptism and how that relates to being in Christ. He tells the Colossians about the remarkable forgiveness of their sins, which was granted by God's grace. And he triumphantly tells them that death, Satan's ultimate weapon has been defeated. So let's go to God's Word. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful, your word is life. Your word is what we need in order to live in this sinful and fallen world. We pray that you would bless us today, that you would put your words in our heart, that we might know you better, that we might be filled with all the fullness of Christ. 
Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we get prepared for the holiday, that you would let us keep our good tempers, that you would let us celebrate traditions, let us experience the joy that comes with family and gatherings, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul gives a warning to the Colossians. He tells them what to be on guard against, how to identify the heresies, and how to stand strong against them. Paul warns them not to be taken captive by what? Philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And he uses an image connected with slavery when he says being taken captive. In verse 4, he talked about and he warned of the opponents who would try to delude you with plausible arguments or with a good-sounding story. So in the first step, people are going to try to deceive them. Verse 8 then changes the image from deception to capture and custody. And that's the pattern of sin, isn't it? It's the pattern of sin that started in the, in the garden. The serpent deceived Eve and then took them captive with his empty deceit and his pridefulness. Paul warns the Colossians to be on guard against that. He does not want those who have been transferred from Satan's domain to Christ's kingdom to become enslaved again. Now, Paul told the Galatians at 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He calls the Colossians and us to constant watchfulness because this danger is near to us all the time. The church constantly faces the danger of false teachers. Remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And we, were ta- we talked about needing to look at what people were saying to you, myself included, any preacher included, and to see if it aligns with God's word. And in Matthew 16.6, Jesus warned, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So human traditions, spiritual things that we might heard about. And the Greek word that Paul uses for captive literally means to kidnap or to carry off as booty or the spoils of war. So Paul does not want the church to be vulnerable to false teachings by ignorance to the truth. He wants the, the church to continue to grow and read and learn the truth. And in this spiritual war, not become prisoners of a spiritual predator and be carried off. Now, we're not talking here about losing salvation, okay? A person who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ may not lose his or her salvation. It just does not happen. Jesus promises in John 6 that those who the Father gives him will never be lost, never be lost. Paul is referring here to believers who are rendered ineffectual for kingdom work or who are kept in a state of spiritual infancy by substituting false teachings for the truth about Jesus Christ. He says, beware, be on your guard against them. So Paul is warning them about being deceived and captured and taken into custody. But what's he warning against? He gives a model here of dealing with heresy, one that we would all be well advised to take a look at And to think about as we are now surrounded by a world which is full of heresy and arguments that we take grievous issue with. And what do we do with those things? Notice here that Paul in this section does not bitterly denounce the heresy by name as we are sometimes tempted to do. And we can all think of issues where, oh, that, and we'll talk about that. 
Emotions and tensions run high in our day. And you know what uh, James says is, you know, the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And so when we're angry and we bitterly react to something that's happened or something that's said, perhaps we're not providing the righteousness that God requires. And so Paul doesn't even name the heresy, okay? He doesn't give it a name. He doesn't present in detail what they believe, okay? And that's not to say that's not important for us to be equipped, but we're talking now about the, the exposition of the Word of God and Paul telling us what we need to do as followers of Jesus Christ in this regard. He deals with the heresy by emphasizing those truths which refute its claims and similar claims by all of the heresies, no matter what their names. He talks about the deity of Christ the Word of God, and he says these leave no cause for uncertainty when you examine a false system. All false systems collapse in the face of truth. If we look at what's being preached to us by the worldly religions, we know that they all collapse in the face of truth because they don't provide an answer to the final fear that we all have, which is death. Which is death, and we'll talk about that at the end here as, as Paul deals with it as well. Paul calls these false teachings philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, something concocted by the elemental spirits of the world. Well, the Greek word for philosophy comes from two Greek words, philia, which means love, like you know, Philadelphia, um, well, city of brotherly love, right? Um, and sophia means wisdom. So philosophy is the love and the pursuit of wisdom. In one sense, everybody's a philosopher. Everybody's got a worldview. Everybody's got a theory about why things are the way they are and what's going to happen, whatever. But secular philosophy generally tends to try to determine ultimate truth apart from God's truth. Man tries to begin with himself and then arrive at some ultimate reality, the ultimate answer to everything that's going on around them by slicing God out of that equation. And this, of course, is futile, because Paul tells us at 1 Corinthians 2.9 that, but as it is written, what, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And Paul further tells us in Romans 1.21 and 22 that, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so it's the word of God, and it's God's spirit which reveals this ultimate reality to us. It is not what secular philosophy tells us, is that we start with man, and we can figure everything out from there. Now, that's not to say that all philosophy is evil or all philosophy is composed of heresy because Paul was a philosopher, and we have Christian philosophers to this day, but Christian philosophers begin and end their analysis of the human condition with Jesus Christ because that's where we start. It's not that life is meaningless. Why are we here? What took place in order to bring these molecules together? We begin where God created the heavens and the earth. And the Word did that, Jesus Christ. So Paul warns against human systems of thought and philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition as well. Now, the human tradition was not necessarily philosophical ideas, but referred also to this mass of, human, of oral traditions the Jews had added to the written law of the Torah. 
Because that was probably also one of the heresies that was being preached there as well. Jesus referred to those, those uh, Jewish traditions in Mark 7, 8 by saying, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of man, which is what Paul is warning about, the traditions of man. And Jesus was chastising the Pharisees there. And these pagan Gentiles, which would have made up most of the church in Colossae, had traditions as well. And so Peter, when he wrote in his second letter, uh, I'm sorry, in his first letter, 1 Peter 1.18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal traditions inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so the, the world at that day had its traditions. We have our traditions as well. And traditions aren't bad. At youth group this week, we discussed traditions such as family celebrations, birthdays, Thanksgiving, other things we do to commemorate events in our lives. God commanded memorials. God commanded feasts. He commanded Passover. He commanded taking the stones out of the Jordan when the Israelites uh, came into the promised lands to be a memorial for all time. But traditions can be a trap and a snare. They can be nothing more than ignorance, foolishness handed down from generation to generation. So like today, for instance, a common argument for evolution is this false assertion, well, scientists have always believed in evolution. Well, it's false, and it's foolish. It's not true. It's a tradition of man. It is not a truth of God. And so Paul warns against traditions of man, asks the Colossians to be careful and to rely only on the traditions of God, which are contained in his word, which is the only source of truth. And so these traditions and philosophies that Paul warns against are those which are based on the minds of man rather than the word of God. And then Paul tells them to beware of those teachings also which depend upon the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Okay? Well, he could have been, and again, it's not clear because he doesn't identify, but what we know that at that time the practice of astrology was very prevalent in the ancient world. Many of the great men of the ancient world, such as Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, believed implicitly in astrology. Well, people who believe in astrology believe in fate and predetermination because of the influence of the stars and planets, and that controls their destiny unless they have the secret knowledge which is necessary to escape that control. That's what astrology is all about. And so Paul is probably referring to that and saying that what these heretics offer is not any advance in spiritual knowledge that they didn't already have, but a retreat to spiritual infancy and to demonic doctrine, to demonic doctrine. Paul might also be referring to the elemental, fallen, demonic spirits at work in all creation, some of which could be manifested in systemic injustices or evil rulers. Whether this is what Paul meant or not, the problem which Paul describes to the Colossians is clear. Anything that's not dependent on Christ, as he says at the end of verse 8, is a deceptive philosophy, an empty deceit, according to human tradition, and must be guarded against. And so Paul warns these new Christians to be on guard against these good-sounding stories based on human tradition. Anything does not have, that does not have as, as its centrality Jesus Christ as Lord must be guarded against. And we need to be thinking about this all the time so that... We understand our dependence upon Christ, and we understand who Jesus is, and that we understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, because that's got to be the basis of our life as we face the things that are coming at us, and as the Colossians face that. 
So warning. So Paul warns them about these general things. Okay. And so for the, the, the second point in our discussion, Paul says, okay, so that's what you have to be warned against. Here's how you start to arm yourself against this. He reinforces our fullness in Christ in verses 9 and 10. And what he says is, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In this short two verses of Scripture, God's Word presents the glorious majesty of God's person, Christ's person, and His complete sufficiency. It is one of the most definitive statements of Christ's deity in the entire New Testament letters. And as John MacArthur says, it is the rock upon which all attempts to disprove Christ's deity are shattered. These heretics must have been saying that Jesus was not God. And this continues to be the primary element in any false system existing today, that Jesus is not God. He was a good teacher, wise man, had all the answers, but he was not God. Okay. And it's likely, and at that time, there was, a, there was a, um, a belief that spiritual fullness, there was a spiritual fullness, but it was divided among a whole bunch of different elemental spirits and gods of the, of the pagans, and it was, there was a scale, and at the top of this ladder, there were the very good spirits, and at the bottom of the ladder were the very bad spirits, and so they believed that all of this fullness was divided amongst all of those, and they got a deteriorating share as they descended from good to bad. But Paul says, no, all the fullness of deity, not a part of it, dwells in Christ. And they talked also about a form of something called dualism, which suggests that there are two elements in the world. There's spirit and there's matter. And they believed that spirit was good and matter was evil, and so it was unthinkable to them that God would take a human body. That's just crazy. couldn't have happened. Similar to what the Muslims believe today. And Paul counters that false philosophy by emphasizing that all the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. And MacArthur says again, the one who took upon himself human nature at Bethlehem will keep that humanity for all eternity. Jesus will always be a man for all eternity. He will forever be the God-man. And so Paul reminds the Colossians and us that because Christ is who he is, we have been made complete in him and that his fullness is given to us. Individually, as a result of sin, man is in a state of incompleteness. Okay, we're full in Christ, but we're incomplete without Christ because we're totally out of fellowship with God. We live outside of God's will, and we're therefore morally incomplete because we can't be holy. And we're mentally incomplete because we don't know the ultimate truth without Christ, without God. So because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, believers become partakers of this divine nature and are made complete. We're made spiritually complete because we have fellowship with God. We're made morally complete because we recognize the authority of God's will. And we're mentally complete because we know the truth about the ultimate reality. Jesus told the people in the Sermon on the Mount that everyone has a choice whether to take the narrow path or the broad path. The broad path is to follow human wisdom, philosophy, empty deceit. The narrow path is to come to Christ. Following the broad path leaves a person spiritually incomplete and headed toward damnation. The narrow path leads to Christ who offers, who alone offers completeness. And if you're here today and you have never admitted your sins and your sinful nature, today is the day to confess those sins, 
Turn from them and accept the saving work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, which provides you with eternal life. Do you want the joy which comes from knowing the truth and having fellowship again with God? Then confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, is the fullness of deity in human flesh, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. It's as easy as that. But Paul's not done talking about the fullness of Christ. He told us in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He tells us again in 2.9, uh, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in his later written gospel, John reiterates at 1.1 when he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And later in 1.14, John says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, saw the risen Christ. And to him, Christ was everything. And he wants everyone to have that experience. Most of us, I'm guessing, have not seen the risen Christ on the road or anywhere. But Paul wants us to have that experience because he says, even though you may not have that specific experience, you will have the experience of being filled with all the fullness of Christ. And he talks about it again and again and again because it is critically important to us as we live our lives these days and 2,000 years ago. So Paul tells the Colossians at verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Some translations will say that they have been brought to fullness. Paul tells them that this union is not simply about what they get. It's not simply that you get salvation or you get peace or whatever. It's all about to whom they are connected. Paul is speaking about a union with Christ, not about virtues or powers that they get as the result of that union. As Peter says in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is a stunning claim. If if you sit and think about this, this is a stunning claim that we are partakers. We get divine nature when we are in Christ. How can that be? We're human beings. And yet that's what Christ does for us. And Paul doesn't mean that believers are perfect like Christ, but he does say there are resources within Christ which through our union with him we may be filled. In our union with Christ, our every spiritual need is fully met. There was no need, therefore, for the Colossians to turn to the philosophy of the heretics, the ritual of the Mosaic law, or the spirits being worshipped by the pagan law. All they needed was Christ Jesus. They didn't need any of these other things. And he then tells them how this union with Christ enables them to overcome. Just like in chapter 1, verse 15, and in chapter 1, verse 18, he reiterates that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. He's in charge. He's the big dog, okay? Everything, everyone, all, Christ has conquered and is victorious, and the Colossians should not return to the enemy camp. Why would you? If the battle's been won, why would you go back to the enemy camp? So Paul warns them about false philosophies and teaching. He provides them with the basis for overcoming them through their strength in Christ. He appears to be dealing with another heresy involving Jewish traditionalism in verses 11 through 12, or 11 through 13, when he discusses baptism and circumcision. 
And he says there, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Paul talks about our circumcision in Christ and how baptism is similar to circumcision and how baptism is a sign of the death of our old man and our resurrection as a new creation. Having told the Colossians and us that Christians are complete in Christ, Paul now gives us three aspects of that completeness in the next few verses. In Christ, we have complete salvation, we have complete forgiveness, and we have complete victory. Now, clearly, the Colossians were dealing with Judaizers who were insisting upon circumcision for salvation. We see that throughout the letters. Paul dealt with that throughout his missionary journey. Every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. That comes from Leviticus. It was a sign that he belonged to the covenant nation. In Israel's history, some believe that circumcision alone was enough to save. Just like today, there are religions that believe that baptism itself is enough to save. Okay? Paul put that view to rest in Romans. He said, no, that's not true. You're not saved by the physical. You're not saved by the man's... That's a man tradition which doesn't save you. Okay? From the beginning, circumcision was used symbolically to illustrate the desperate need man had for cleansing of his heart. That's what it was about. The cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. In Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses commanded the Israelites saying, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 36 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God commanded the Israelites through Jeremiah that they should circumcise themselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of their heart. God is concerned with the heart, not with the physical act of circumcision. That's what Paul is telling him. It's not about this physical act. It's the condition of your heart. Paul says in Romans 2.29, For no one is a Jew who merely is one outwardly, meaning they've been circumcised, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. It's not a tradition of man. It's a work of God. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so we see Paul again drawing the distinction between traditions of man and traditions of God. Jews are circumcised by hand, the traditions of man. Christians are circumcised, Paul says, without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. The purpose of the circumcision of Christ is the removal of what is called the body of flesh, which is the sinful fall in human nature, which totally dominates us before salvation. We were slaves to that human nature before salvation. The Greek word that he uses for putting off is a compound word picturing both stripping off and casting away. The image is that of discarding or being divested of a piece of filthy clothing. It's being taken off of you and cast away, thrown away. 
Paul then relates this spiritual circumcision with baptism. Paul is not now saying that baptism is a new rite that needs to be engaged in by the believer in order to have salvation. It's not like, well, you don't have circumcision anymore, but you've got to do baptism in order to be it. Paul's saying that circumcision by Christ is baptism with Christ. Baptism is an act of God that relocates a person into God's family. It is not what we do during the baptism rite, or what the church does during the baptism rite, but what God does. It doesn't matter whether someone gets dunked, sprinkled, or whatever, although it may, depending upon the denomination you come from, but it's not what we do, it's what God does. God makes us a member of His family, which is His church when we get baptized. But the baptism, in baptism, we're truly in Christ. We're participating in his suffering, death, and resurrection. It's more than a ritual, and it's more than a spiritual thought, according to Paul. It's our literal death and resurrection in Christ, which takes place by God's work through our faith in the work of God and a surrendering of our trust to God. Faith is not simply faith in Jesus Christ, but faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. As N.T. Wright says, to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe in the God who raises the dead. You have to believe in that God. Such faith not merely assents to a fact about Jesus, it recognizes a truth about God, that he can raise from the dead. And by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Colossians have been transferred into the family of this new age where the rulers of the old world have no authority any longer. And so Paul is telling us that baptism is not an empty ritual, but it's a real-life experience in which we profess our faith in the God who has the power to raise from the dead and who does literally transfer us from the dominion of the forces of this world into his new kingdom, into his new family, into his church, where we can sit today a completely disparate group of people who have no reason to be sitting here together other than the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because let's face it, most of us here would not choose to hang out with the other people. They're not in a bad way or anything, but that's just not what we would do. Okay? But that's what happens. That's what God does is he transfers us here. And it's done how? Through our faith in the powerful working of God. Because the word he says working, Paul in there, it's the Greek word energia, from which we get the word English word energy, but it refers to God's active power. It's the same power that raised, God, that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that raises us into this fellowship that we find ourselves now. So Paul now moves, having dealt with the issue of circumcision and baptism and how it relates to these spiritual traditions and how it relates to fighting against these, these spiritual demonic powers, he moves now to the issue of forgiveness and the defeat of death. So in verse 13, Paul tells us that God has ushered in a new creation. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. It's a new creation. God creates anew by making us alive again. Okay? Which of us has the ability to bring anything back to life that's dead? Nobody. But we were dead, and God gave us life. He brought us back to life. It's an act of creation, a new creation act. And Paul tells us God creates a new beginning. How? With the forgiveness of sins. Because our sins had separated us from God. And God makes this new beginning. And who does he forgive, according to Paul? Paul says you. 
You, you and me, Gentiles, sinners, the Colossians, of course, but they were given a new life through their faith in the powerful working of God. God makes them alive because spiritually dead persons cannot make themselves alive. So God does it for us. So God's forgiveness of sins is an extremely important truth of Scripture, both Old Testament and New. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And in 55.7 of Isaiah, God says, Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God wants to forgive sins. And in the New Testament, Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. In Acts 3.19 has Peter telling the Jews, repent therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. So Paul tells the Colossians that they who were dead in their sins and in their uncircumcision, that is the Gentiles, God forgave all of their sins. So what is this forgiveness? And what does it mean? Well, first, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. It's provided as a gracious gift by God. Romans 3.24 tells us that people are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't cost us anything. It's free. Second, it's complete and total forgiveness. 1 John 2.12 tells us, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Third, the forgiveness is certain because it's based on God's promise, and we know that God keeps his promises. Fourth, it's unequaled or unrivaled by any worldly system because none of the gods of false religions or worldly systems offers that forgiveness. None. And finally, this forgiveness also motivates us because Ephesians 4.32 commands us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's our reason for forgiveness is because we've been forgiven. Why would we care about forgiving? I mean, you know, I can think of probably a dozen instances in the last week where somebody did something like, "Ah, you know, I did, you know. Or where I say, you know, you just, you need to understand my position here. Well, no, no, they don't. Because that's not what forgiveness is all about. It's not forcing somebody to understand your position. And I never really heard Jesus say that either on the cross. Hey, guys, you just need to hear me out here. You need to listen. So forgiveness, full and complete It's a gift from God which enables us to live fully in His church and in this new life and kingdom to which we have been transferred. And it is full. Remember, in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. You know why it's east to west? Because if it was north to south, you could travel north, get to the North Pole, then you're traveling south. But if you're traveling east, you never stop traveling east. You go on east for eternity. Or if you travel west, you go on west to, to eternity. There's no, there's no dividing there. And that's why that analogy is used. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Our new creation erases or scrapes off our indebtedness. Paul's image describes a handwritten note 
which implies at that time ink on papyrus or on vellum. Right? Papyrus was a paper-like material made from the bulrush plant. Vellum was made from an animal hide. But the ink that was used at that time had no acid in it. And so it didn't soak into the writing materials. And since the ink was just on the surface, it could be wiped off if the scribe wanted to reuse the material. Well, that's what God did. He wiped off our certificate of debt. It's not simply canceled, but it's taken away. It's like it never existed. It's not like written void or you have a bad check void. No, it's like it never existed. It never happened. Not a trace of it remains for it to be held against us. Our forgiveness is complete. And how did he do this? How did God do this? He nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. The charge was canceled by the death of Christ. It died when Christ died. This does not mean that the moral law has lost its significance for the believer. It does not mean that we should forget about loving God with all our heart and our neighbors as ourselves. That law of love has eternal validity. In fact, it's our supreme delight to be able to love God with all our hearts or to love our neighbors with, as, as we love ourselves or as Christ loved us. We obey those laws out of gratitude for the salvation we've received as a result of the gift of God's grace. But we've been discharged from the law viewed as a code of rules and regulations which were, to the Jews, a means of at- attaining eternal life. If you could completely and fully fulfill the law, which they never could, and then it became a curse that was threatening to destroy it. So the result of the cross? Death was defeated. Death was defeated. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Okay? Same way that somebody scoring the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl taunts and puts the opposing team to shame Jesus puts the rulers and authorities to shame because they dare not stand up against him any longer. They have been defeated by the cross. And this term triumphing that Paul used would have brought to mind an image common in the Roman world. It describes, the the word triumph describes a public parade of the conquering military general with a display of domination over those who have been conquered. So the the, the conquering general gathers up... um, troops, booty, whatever else, and he rides in the front of the parade in his chariot. He leads his troops through the streets of the city, and behind them trails the vanquished kings, the soldiers, the spoils of battle, and that's the procession of triumph. And in Paul's picture, though, Christ is the conquering general. The powers and the authorities are the vanquished enemy displayed before not just the citizens of a Roman town, but in front of the entire universe. The entire universe sees that Jesus Christ has won. To the world, the cross appears to be an instrument of death, the symbol of Christ's defeat, but Paul presents it as Christ's chariot of victory. And we see here Paul's countercultural teaching again, because the location to celebrate victory, that Paul says, is not the Roman forum, or the public streets of Roman cities, but instead the precise place where Rome thought it was absolutely dominant, the cross. The place where Rome thought it could destroy every revolution against it, the cross. Paul says, that's the place where we're having our victory celebration. And at the place that Rome used as the ultimate indignity, God reestablishes the dignity of every man. Yes, death was defeated at the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The world 
has no solution for this final enemy of death. It does not. Solomon, probably the most wise man ever living, did not understand God's great plan as we now know it. He lived before that. He investigated the world and wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And in that book, he could only conclude that everything was meaningless. You could do anything. You could be as successful as you want. You could be as joyful as you want. But in the end, you die, and that was it. Death renders all the world's pride and riches completely meaningless. The world has no solution for that final enemy, death. But as Paul reminds us in Colossians, we are not to be taken captive by that philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Instead, we find our answer to everything in Christ Jesus the Lord. He has defeated death. He has given us the answer to death. We have risen from spiritual death to spiritual life in him. And on the final day, the final day, death will be overcome by Jesus Christ. There will no longer be any pain, suffering, or death. We await that day anxiously. We can't wait to see that day. But until it comes, Paul reminds the Colossians and us to be faithful, to protect ourselves against false teachings, to remember our spiritual circumcision and baptism, And to remember that our sins have been forgiven through the grace of God who has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome, awesome thing that you have done for us, miserable sinners, Lord. You have given us life through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. You have made us new creations in Christ. We now are a partaker of the divine nature, Lord. We confess to you that we do not take that seriously sometimes and that we fall short, Lord, but we beg that your Spirit would show us the path that would help equip us to do those things that we might not feel like doing, but we know are your will, Lord. We pray that you would bless us. We pray that you would bless our time tonight, this time of celebration and thanksgiving, and that we would be given a heart of gratitude to you for all that you have done for us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.